Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. If you have retained anything from last week's lesson, I hope that you have retained that you are not to add anything to his words, lest he reprove you and you are proved a liar. You're not supposed to add to the word. You're not supposed to take away from the word. That is still the theme this evening. I used it thematically last week. I'm going to do it again because it is something that we read repeatedly. We found it in the book of Deuteronomy. We found it in the book of Revelation. We find it in the Proverbs, which means that it's in the law and the writings and the prophets. The whole of the Bible repeats that we're not to add anything to it, and we're not to take anything from it. And so I have used the phrase for many years that we need to be brave enough to preach everything that the Bible says. We're not allowed to take anything from it. But then we also have to be cautious enough not to say things that the Bible doesn't say, because then we would be adding to it. If we don't preach everything that's in the Bible, if we subtract the parts of the Bible that we don't like, then we are giving our listeners a truncated view of the Bible. And in fact, we are cheating them out of the greater understanding and greater blessing that they would receive as a result of knowing the things that we simply aren't telling them. I'm stressing that point because, you know, I do listen to preachers all the time. I am a student of preaching. You could come into my house just about any time of any day, and what you'll hear is a sermon somewhere. Sermons are playing. And I am really amazed at the hunt and peck method that people use when teaching the Bible, starting with an idea that they would like to advance and then hunting through the Bible to find some verse that supports what it is they want to say anyway. And I am amazed at the out-of-context use of the Bible and the enormously large swaths of the Bible that just get ignored. For instance, there is just simply no way that you can read the Old Testament verse by verse, as we've been doing, and then come away with the conclusion that in the New Testament, God is done with Israel. If that's your conclusion, then you have to say, well, then what does all that Old Testament stuff mean? What about those promises of God? Mm -hmm. And I only use that as an example to say there are many things, many doctrinal things, things that are established, like Jesus himself saying that not one jot, not one tittle of the law was going to disappear until it's all fulfilled. And the law he was speaking of was the Old Testament, which is the law and the prophets and the writing. Not one part of the law or the prophets is going to disappear until it's all satisfied, till it's all fulfilled. Well, if you ignore that, then it's easy for you to say, yes, I know that it says certain things in the Old Testament, but those things don't count anymore. As if God just simply does away with things that he declared. We just this past Sunday saw that whatever the Lord does, it is forever. It is everlasting, simply by virtue of the fact that he is an everlasting God. When he does things, when he says things, they are automatically everlasting. And yet... People just ignore so many important things in the Bible. Now, I won't stump on that this evening. We are going to start Proverbs chapter 30, but I just wanted to lay out one more time and say it as clear as I can say it, not believing that it's necessarily going to change everybody's mind and they're suddenly all going to become ardent biblical students and expositors just because I said it. But that's why I point out that the Bible says it. The Bible keeps saying, don't do that. 
not only are you cheating people, but you're going to be proved to be a liar if you do that. And that's what the Word of God says. Had you read the Word of God, you would know that the Word of God says that you're going to be considered a liar if you take things away or add anything to the Word of God. And let's be honest, I don't really want God to put me in the liar category. I would prefer to hear the well done, good and faithful servant thing as opposed to, wow, you did a bunch of stuff to damage my word. You liar. We are in chapter 30, as I said, of the book of Proverbs. We're going to spend the first little bit of tonight discussing who these people are. Up until now in the book of Proverbs, we have been reading the Proverbs of Solomon, and we know that it's Solomon's Proverbs, and we're told that they are Solomon's Proverbs, and we know that he was given wisdom from God so that he was the wisest of kings when he was ruling there in the Middle East from Jerusalem. We know that people came from afar to see the kind of wealth and wisdom of King Solomon. So therefore, when we see his Proverbs, we sit up and pay attention. But if I were to say to you, I have a proverb for you from Agur, your first question would be, who? <laughs> and why exactly would I pay attention to a proverb from Agur? Nobody really knows historically who Agur is. I have read commentary after commentary attempting to discover some kind of background information about Agur. The fact that we don't really know who he is has allowed various different interpreters to say perhaps he's not even a real human being. Perhaps that's a pen name for Solomon. Perhaps this is all being done descriptively and allegorically that this name is being used. Then other commentators will say, no, there's no way that's right. Let me read a couple of uh, commentaries to you. This is from the pulpit commentary. They write, the Jewish interpreters considered that Agur, the son of Jakah, was an allegorical designation for Solomon. Agur, that word, means a gatherer or a convener. And the word Jakah means obedient or pious, in which case that would be a reference to David. St. Jerome somewhat countenances this allegorical interpretation by translating in the Latin verba congregantis fili vomentis. In other words, the words of the collector, the son of the utterer. But what follows next in the text could not apply to Solomon. He could not say, I have not learned wisdom, or ask blindly after the creator. Now the pulpit commentary says, according to this rendering, the man of Agur, who is introduced as uttering what follows in verse 2, etc., to Ithiel and Eucal, who apparently are two of his sons, or two pupils, or two companions, the name Eucal occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. Ithael is found once in Nehemiah 11.7 as the name of a Benjamite. Wordsworth regards the names as symbolical of the moral character of those whom the author designs to address, explaining the former name as equivalent to God with me and the latter name as denoting consumed, apparently consumed with zeal, or alternately strong or perfect. It is as if the writer said, you must have God with you, yea, you must have God with you, if you are to be strong. You must be Ithiel's if you are to be Eucal's. Benson's commentary takes a completely different tact. The words of Agur, who this Agur was, no one has ever been able to prove or show. It's probable, however, that both he and Jakah, his father, were well known in Israel at the time that this chapter and the next were added to the preceding parts of the Proverbs. Jakah 
is thought to have lived either in Solomon's time or soon after, and to have been famous in his generation for his wisdom and his piety. The prophetical instruction is because as the prophets were public teachers, as well as foretellers of things to come, so their sermons, no less than their predictions, are commonly called their prophecies. And Ithiel and Ucal would just be two friends and contemporaries of Agur who desired his instruction. That's the simplest, most straightforward explanation of who these people are. Eliot's commentary says, Unto, even unto Ithiel and Ucal, these are most likely disciples of his. As their names may mean God with me and I am strong, a fanciful delineation of their characters in the style of Pilgrim's Progress, it has been attempted by some writers as a mystical interpretation of them. In other words, you must have God with you if you are to be strong. Well, we just read that. That was the interpretation that was handed to us from Wordsworth. Here we are in Eliot's commentary reading that, no, that's a fanciful interpretation. All I'm trying to show you is there's no unanimity here. There's no agreement about who these people are or even what these names mean. It has been proposed also, as is possible with a slight change in the pointing, that's referring to the way that the Hebrew language is written because there are no vowels within the language. It's just consonants within the words with little vowel points. So it is proposed also, as is possible with a slight change in the pointing, to translate these words thus. Instead of, I am strong, I am weary, O God. I am weary and weak. Or translated, have made an end. And to make them an introduction to Proverbs 30, which supplies the reason for that weariness. Because I am foolish, I am brutish. Thus is described, it has been thought, the sinking at heart of one who has sought after God. And the more he has realized the divine excellence, he has become more conscious of his own nothingness. But then again, you have to ask whether Solomon could write such things. Finally, Jason Fawcett Brown's commentary says, Agur, the son of Jekhah, a person so-called as appears from the designation of his own and his father's name, who lived either in Solomon's time or rather just afterwards and was famous in his generation for his wisdom and piety and prophecy. And therefore, his proverbs were thought fit to be added to those of Solomon, either by those men of Hezekiah that were mentioned in Proverbs 25.1 or by some other gatherers of Proverbs. But that this should be meant of Solomon may easily be supposed, but it cannot be proved, nor is it probable as being contrary both to the style of the whole rest of the chapter and to the matter that is some part of it. For instance, Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 8, which agrees not at all to Solomon and to the laws of good interpretation. This is why I'm quoting from the Jason Fawcett Brown commentary. I really like this statement. Trust me, there were other commentaries along similar veins. I could find those that were ready to go with the allegorical interpretation. I could, go, I could find ones that were going with the simpler interpretation, but I just like this statement. The laws of good interpretation, one of which is, that all words should be taken in their most natural and proper sense when there is no evidence nor necessity of understanding them improperly or figuratively, which is the present case. In other words, if the plain meaning makes sense, you don't need to go looking for a different meaning. 
And if the plain meaning is exactly what it says, these are the words of a fellow named Agur, who is the son of a fellow named Jakah, the oracle, the prophet, the seer. And this man declares his proverbs to Ithiel, and even from Ithiel to Yukal. That, I think, is the most natural reading of it. And if we don't know who those people are, we have to trust the fact that at some point in ancient history, this Agur was considered to be so wise and so prudent in his comments that his comments were indeed thought to be fit to put right up against Solomon's Proverbs and that they carried as much weight as Solomon's Proverbs in the mind of ancient Hebrews who actually did know who this was. So the fact that he's lost to antiquity doesn't change the value of what he had to say. Make sense? Now, the very first thing he says causes all kinds of controversy. Because the very first thing he says is, surely I am more, the NASB goes with, I am more stupid than any man. The word means in the Hebrew that I'm like a brute beast. I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Now, what is that all about, and how does that become a proverb of wisdom? And why are we listening to this guy if he starts right out by saying, I don't know anything? Well, the answer is, he apparently is speaking ironically. He is apparently answering a critic. This is apparently part of some larger conversation where someone has questioned his wisdom. And just like we might say when someone questions us, we might go, okay, yeah, all right, I'm an idiot. Yeah, I know nothing. Okay, fine. Okay, no, I don't have doctorate degrees. Okay, no, I don't have, you know, you start listing your credits. Okay, no, I haven't been at this for 20 years. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, that's apparently what he's doing here, because the next words he is about to say are words in defense of the unknowable God. And apparently he has presented this idea. He has spoken wisdom about this unknowable God. Apparently someone has questioned him or criticized what he has to say about this magnificent God. And his response is, yeah, okay, right, I'm stupid. I'm a brute beast. Right, okay, sure. Surely, I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. And now he is replying to that critic who has responded to him. And now he is saying to them, okay, then you explain God, since my explanations don't seem adequate. You do it. And this is one of the things that we see repeatedly in the Bible, which are explanations of God that are just too big for us to comprehend. Sometimes it's God who does it. Sometimes it's people with God-given wisdom who do it. But every once in a while, God has to be explained to us in a way that just makes us need to duct tape our head closed because the description is just so far beyond our grasp. I think we saw some of that just this past Sunday as we talked about the unchanging character of an all-knowing eternal God. We can use those words. We know the definitions of those words. We understand what those sentences mean, but when it really gets down to it, we can't comprehend that. We time-bound creatures don't really understand what eternality is. We can say it is a philosophical concept, but none of us have experienced it. The way that I've explained it before is, it's like going to your friend's house who recently visited Hawaii. And he decides that a good thing to do after dinner would be to break out the slide projector. I don't think those even exist anymore. Would be to break out the slide projector and 
force everybody in his house to endure his slides of his vacation in Hawaii. And as you're sitting there watching the pictures, you can say, wow, that looks nice. But you can't really enter into it because you've never been there. You haven't experienced it firsthand. You, you can look at it, but you don't know what it smells like. You can look at the sandy beaches, but you don't know what it feels like to have that sand between your toes. You can look at the food. I marvel sometimes at people who post pictures of their food on Facebook. And I think, how pointless is that? Because none of us can taste it. It looks nice, but we can't experience it. Well, every once in a while, the Bible does that. The Bible says, this is the explanation of God that is so far beyond your experience that you can't really comprehend it. You can read the words and think, wow, that sounds really magnificent. But you can't really enter into it because you haven't been there yet. Hopefully, you'll all get there. And hopefully, when we get there, we'll have an even bigger glimpse of who God really is. And even as we're seeing his glory, I don't believe we're still going to perceive all of what it is. He's just so far beyond human grasp. And that's why I keep arguing that he is the best explainer, the best exegete of himself. Because he is the only one who understands what he's like from the inside. We don't know that. We're on the outside looking in like people looking at slides of Hawaii saying, wow, that looks great, but we've just never been there. We don't know what it feels like. We haven't experienced it yet. But when you read these kind of words, it ought to make you want to experience it. Starts with some questions. This is very Job-like, by the way. When God shows up to Job and starts in with the questions, where were you when I did everything? Verse 4, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Commentators are quick to point out that even though that seems like a theoretical question when it was asked, there is an answer to it. The answer is there's only one who was ever ascended and descended from heaven and done so rather freely. It's Jesus who even after his death ascended into heaven so that he was presenting himself to the father and then appeared on earth again. When Mary came, thought he was the gardener, he said, don't touch me. Once she realized who it was, he said, don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the father. A couple days later, he shows up to Thomas and says, go ahead, touch me. Where's he been? We went to heaven for a while. He presented his sacrifice to his father, and then he returned to earth to confirm to his apostles that he actually had accomplished everything he said he was going to accomplish, that he was fulfilling everything that the scripture says about him. He is the only one who has ascended into heaven and descended. However, I think Agur is asking this question to his critic, to his respondent. And he's saying, okay, if you know more than I do, are you the one who went up to heaven and found these things out? And now you're back. You've come back and you're going to explain these things to us. Well, no human has ever done that. So who has ascended into heaven and descended who has gathered the wind in his fists? Okay, now that may just be a poetic description of God. But in a moment, we're going to look at more descriptions of God from the book of Isaiah, where we're going to read like all the nations are like a drop in the bucket to God. So the things that we think of as, as the entire world the things that we think of as the entire universe, things that are so far beyond our grasp and our comprehension, the Bible writers in describing God say that these things are simple. He calls every star by name. He's just so far beyond us. That's why Isaiah would say, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above us. So are his thoughts so far above us. His ways are so far above us. 
So the Bible keeps trying to say, you're not God, and God's not like you. And the best demonstration of that is that God comprehends things that you can't begin to comprehend. He has power that you don't begin to have. He has abilities that you don't begin to have. If you want to prove that you are somewhat like God, go outside and gather up all the wind in your fist. Well, you can't do that. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Now, that phraseology might seem a little odd to us, but it was very common for people when they were wearing longer garments, longer robes, when they would carry things, it was common for them to wrap them in their garment and then walk carrying the thing in their wrapped garment. One thing that you could not carry in your wrapped garment was water. You can't put water in your wrapped garment and get home, unwrap your garment, and think the water is going to be there. And yet, that impossibility is stated here as God can do this, and not only can he carry water in his garment, he can carry all the water, all the water of the whole earth. He can wrap it up in his garment and take it wherever he wants it to go. He's the God who created water and created land. He's the God who, in the book of Genesis, said that the water could only come so far and just stop right there. He's the God who is in control of the things that we don't begin to control. We don't even comprehend how to control them. This week, there was floods in Michigan because a couple of dams broke. And people panicked because water, too much water. So we don't control water. Water has force that we cannot control. And no matter how badly we want to do it, we can't wrap water in a cloth and then carry water home. We just can't do it. And yet the description that Agur gives is that God wraps up all the water in his garment. And who has established all the ends of the earth? Boy, that sounds Job-like, doesn't it? It's God who created everything. It's God who created the concepts of east, west, and north, and south. It's God who created the universe. It's God who spun the planets into such perfect elliptical orbits that it created seasons, and yet, despite the fact that each planet has its own gravitational pull, they don't run into each other because the movement around the sun is enough to draw them away from the sun, even as the sun is trying to pull them in and everything hangs in perfect balance, constantly rotating in the cycles that God has created for them. You didn't do that. God did that. He established everything on the planet. When was the last time you made a tree? You can plant a tree. You didn't make one. When was the last time you dug out a river? You might have a pond you made in your backyard. But who exactly went to work to create the Mississippi? When was the last time that anything on the planet was the result of man-made construction? Even the things that we make, we make with the materials that God put here to begin with. So nothing that man does is made independent of God who establishes everything on the earth. He established all the ends of the earth. And then Agur asks, what is the name of that God? Any God who could do all that, who could create all that, what is his name? Since you apparently seem to know him so well that you would tell me that I don't know anything when I'm talking about him. Now that you apparently have such expertise, tell us who is that God who can do that? And then look at the second half of that sentence. What is his name or his son's name? Now, Agur might be speaking in a way of saying, you don't know the only God that exists. You don't even know if he has heritage. You don't even know if he has family. You don't even know if he has offspring. 
name his family. Name that God and name, oh, his son. Except that now, with what we know from the New Testament revelation of Christ and what we know from Trinitarian doctrine, and what we know if you go back to Genesis and you look at God saying, let us create man in our image, or even the very fact that God is referred to as Elohim in the plural. So then Agur asked this really interesting and piercing question, what is the name of that God and what is his son's name? And then just to kind of stick the knife in his opponent a little bit more, he says, surely you know. So he's saying, here are these impossible questions. And since you're so smart, surely you must know. And that is what leads me to say that his questions at the beginning or his statements at the beginning, surely I am more stupid than any man. I don't have any understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. The reason that I said he has to be saying that almost rhetorically, he has to be saying that ironically, is because after he poses his questions about describe God, he includes the words, surely you know. So he's clearly talking to somebody. And whether he's challenging Ithiel and Eucal, if those are the opponents, if those are the critics, then he's saying to them, if they are his students, then he is still saying, there is so much more to learn about God. There is so much more that you don't begin to know. There is so much that you simply cannot explain, that human beings just can't comprehend, that he uses it to, to kind of poke at them and say, well, since you're so smart, answer these questions for me. Explain who God is. Explain who his son is. And then explain how he established all the ends of the earth and how he wraps up all the waters of the earth in his own garment and how he holds the wind in his fist and how he ascends and descends to heaven. Explain all of this to me. And of course, that would be enough to shut anybody's mouth the same way at the end of the book of Job. God's questions about himself are designed to make Job say, I heard about you, but now that I see you, I repent in dust and ashes. <laughs> I put my hand over my own mouth. I, I have no place that I can speak once I have some grasp of who you actually are. Okay, so now that we've established to some degree that there is this unknowable God, this incomprehensible God, this God who is so far beyond human capacity or capability, it is in that context that then you can say, and every word of that God, okay, well, good. He knows that there are already words of God. He knows that the, the five books of Moses exist. He knows that some of the early historic books exist. And he knows that they've been laid up at God's command. They've been laid up with the holy objects. So these are the holy words of God. At God's command, the words that are written down by Moses and later by the prophets are actually stored right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Right there with the holiest stuff. And so you can say, that is the word of God, and every bit of it is tested and tried and true. One of the evidences that I offer frequently to try to say this is the very word of God, the Bible that we are reading is the very word of God, one of those evidences is that there are prophecies in this Bible that have actually come true, that have actually happened here in time and history. And we know when the prophecy was written, and we know when it was fulfilled. And so we know for certain that this book does things that no other book can do in terms of telling the truth about what's going to occur in the future. Yes, every word of God has been tested. It's been tried. It's been proven. It has demonstrated itself to be the very word of that unknowable God, which is really fascinating 
I, I know I'm getting excited about this, but, but this stuff excites me because this is really interesting based on the fact that this completely unknowable, incomprehensible God who is far beyond our capability or capacity to begin to conceive of took the time to tell us about himself in language that we could comprehend so that we would not go through the rest of our lives never knowing him because if he left it up to us, up to our comprehension, up to our intelligence, up to our brute beast-like qualities, we'd never know it. We wouldn't begin to comprehend it. And yet the incomprehensible God gave us his word so that we could know some stuff about him, some fraction, some little bit about him, enough to get us all the way to his glory. And by the way, it only takes a little bit of God's explanation of himself to get us all the way to glory. Because there are places in the Bible that talk about the stuff we're not allowed to know. The man who went to the third heaven and heard stuff that it wasn't right for human beings to talk about. Mankind can't utter that stuff. That was heaven talk. You can't know that. Or my favorite example, John in the book of Revelation saying that the thunder spoke. So far he's been writing down everything. Then I saw, then I saw, then I heard, then I saw. And then the thunder speaks. And the angel says, don't write down what the thunder said. What? <laughs> I have two t-shirts at home that say, I want to know what the thunder said. Because I do. But the point is, God is not required to demonstrate everything about himself. Moses said, let me see your glory. God said, no, you couldn't do that. That would kill you. I'll just let you see the hinder parts. And just the last trail of the glory of God was enough to make Moses' face shine. So God only has to give you one small portion of himself, some small knowledge of who he is and what he's like. And that is adequate to get you saved forever. Which means, the reason I'm driving this point home is, which means, as knowledgeable as we think we are, as much comprehension as we think we have, as much Bible as we think we're full of, when we get to heaven, we're going to discover how much we don't know. There are eons in the future for us to spend discovering the glory of God and understanding his magnificent grace to us, that he would let us come be part of all that. Every word of God is tested and tried. And if you trust him, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. That statement is made a few times in the Bible, and I think what it means is this world down here can be cruel. This world down here can be confusing. It can make no sense. And yet, we have this peace that passes understanding. That peace comes from knowing God, from knowing that he's called us, that we belong to him, and that he is protecting us, and that he is a shield to us, protecting us despite what we're going through. And so our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in this world. Our confidence is in him, so we take our refuge in him. He is our shield, and he is refuge to those who go to him. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, as a consequence of all that, now, I hope you can feel the weight of what we've been saying for the last couple of weeks. He is the God who is unexplainable, far beyond everything. He is the God who can do and has done and will do the impossible. 
He is the God whose word has been tested and tried and proven to be true and verifiable and trustworthy. And he is a shield. He is a protection to all the people who take refuge in him. And for all those reasons collectively, don't add to his word. Has weight now, doesn't it? Now it feels like, yeah, that that would be the wrong God to mess with. That would be the wrong God to think that you could improve on. Measly little you. Yeah, God, a little error in your word. Not a big deal, little error, but don't worry, I fixed it for you. Yeah. Do not add to his word, lest he reprove you. The end result being you are proven to be a liar. As we said last week, and I tried to really emphasize this last week, God who is true, God who is honest, has given us his trustworthy word, and he said, don't expand on it, and don't take away from it, because any time you add to the word of God, any time you take away from the word of God, you're lying. And worse, you're lying on the omnipotent God who is in charge of everything, who will hold you guilty for the way you have mistreated his word, for the way you have mishandled his word. That's why in my earlier definition I said we have to be brave enough to say everything the Bible says, but we have to be reverent enough, we have to be careful enough, we have to be cautious enough Not to say what it doesn't say. Because it says, within itself, it says, you're a liar if you do that. You're making stuff up. That's the phrase I use all the time. You're just making stuff up. God went right for, you're a liar. And if you're going to lie on anybody, God would be the wrong person to lie on. And he said that lie of yours is demonstrated most accurately by the fact that you are willing to add or subtract to or from his word. How important then does that make his word? How important then is it to pay attention to his word? How important then is it to preach every word of God, and might I add, to preach it in context so that the meaning becomes more obvious to the listeners, so that the Bible does its own interpreting, because contextually it will interpret itself. The more you know about what the Bible says, the more you'll understand the rest of what the Bible says. And just because the Bible says something that you don't like or that doesn't comport with what you would prefer doesn't give you the right to eliminate that from the Bible or to chop it off or to not teach it or to not stand toe-to-toe with it because all of those approaches to the Bible are demonstrations that you are a liar. God said it. I didn't say it. I got worked up about it. Don't lie on God. Tell the truth about God. And the only way that we miserable creatures can tell the truth on God is to say what God said. Think God's thoughts after him. Say God's words after him. And don't feel compelled to add a bunch of our own stuff. Because our stuff is meaningless. When Steve dies, you know how many people he's going to save by his death? Not a one. Not even himself. Nobody. So then when the subject of salvation comes up, how much credibility does Steve's words actually have? None, because he has no authority and he has no ability to save anybody. And so really, why should we pay much attention to what he thinks? You get my point? Yeah. I'm not trying to degrade Steve. Not even if I write a book. But yeah, even if you write a book, unless your book is about explaining what God's word says, 
the book itself has no value. It's just you extrapolating, it's you opinionating. I read commentaries as I tried to prove, <laughs> tried to demonstrate a little while ago. I read commentaries and whenever I read them, I think of the, the quote that I, I believe it came from DJ Ward, that's who I've always credited with it and if he didn't say it, then I'm giving him credit for it anyway. But the quote is, you know, it's amazing how much light the Bible can throw on some of these commentaries. <laughs> commentaries are supposed to be throwing light on the Bible. But as I think I just demonstrated, I just read four different commentaries that didn't agree on anything. Even when they went back and quoted early church fathers, they still came to the conclusion that they don't know. The word of God is the only authoritative word in your life. So you need to concentrate on that. That's what we're to exegete. That's what we're to explain. That's what we're to put in front of people. My words, no matter how erudite I might be, no matter how skilled I may be at presenting an idea and talking about stuff, my words don't do anybody any eternal good except to the degree that it drives you back to the word of God. That's why we've been doing the same thing for 19 years here. We just keep driving people back to, yes, but here's the word of God. And what does the word of God say about it? And what is the context of how it says it? And what is the meaning of what it's saying? Just understanding, digging into the word of God. And I just said, I've been doing this for 19 years here as a public church. Considering James's recent birthday and his age, that would be, I actually, when he was born, I was doing my internship at the church out in Los Angeles. I've devoted half my life to this enterprise I'm going to be 65 this year, and I feel like I'm just figuring some stuff out. Mm -hmm. I'm just scratching the surface. I'm just getting at some stuff now. I'm just starting to really kind of understand some stuff. I've preached through the entire New Testament. One book we went through twice, and I want to do it all again because I feel like I'm just now getting some kind of grip on what this is about. But that's the way it would be if it is the word of God. If any man could have actual, complete comprehension of it, then it's not the word of God. I get nervous when people talk about Bible experts. There are no experts on the Bible. There's just people who have spent time trying to figure it out, but no one has expertise in the Bible. Otherwise, it's not the word of God because it can be fully comprehended by some man. No man comprehends the word of God. Every word of God is tested, tried, true. And he, God, is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. I have said so many times through the years that one of the most difficult things for human beings to attain is contentment. One of the most difficult things for us to come to is the point where we understand that because God is in charge, that what we have, where we're at, what we're going through is all in the hands of a sovereign God. And if we are resting in him as our shield, as our refuge, then whatever we're going through, we should have contentment in it because we know that it is a sovereign God who has our best interest in mind, who is taking us through those things. So I don't think it's any mistake that the next thing that Agur says is speaking to God two things I ask of thee do not refuse me before I die in other words this is really all I want from life keep 
deception and lies far from me. Okay, he just got done saying that when you deal with the word of God, if you add to it, you're a liar. Now here he is explaining to Ithiel and you, Cal, he's explaining this incomprehensible God, but he wants to do it in such a way that he's not lying about God and that he's not lying on the word of God. And in fact, he doesn't want to be a liar. Certainly all the wisdom of Solomon has demonstrated that a lying person is ultimately a fool. They will ultimately be judged. And so he says, to God, keep deception and lies from me. Hmm. He is trusting that God is the one who has the power to keep deception and lies away from him. The same God who, when Jesus was teaching his apostles to pray, one of the things that he said you're to say to God is, deliver me from evil. That is, deliver me from the evil one more directly. But the prayer to God is, keep me from misunderstanding. Keep me from lying words. Keep me from not comprehending things in a correct way. Don't let me advance my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own opinions. Don't let me lie on you. Don't let me lie to other people. Let me be trustworthy. Let me be upright. Let me be a good representative of you on the planet. Two things I ask of you. Don't refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. And the next request is, give me just enough. Look at how he puts it. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Give me enough. You don't have to make me rich, but I would prefer that you not make me poor. In a minute, he's going to say why that would be. But he's arguing for, let me be content with what you give me, but take care of me in this lifetime. Give me just enough food as what's appropriate for me. Give me just enough money, just enough wealth, that's appropriate for me. Don't, don't let me go through my life poor and having to beg, but also don't make me rich. In my lifetime, I have seen as many people destroyed by wealth as I've ever seen destroyed by poverty. That's just a fact. In my rock and roll days, when I was hanging out with musicians, comedians, and actors, I met some very, very successful wealthy people. And I watched them just circle the drain because money does horrible things to people. And he seems to understand that. Agore says that. Don't make me overly rich, but don't make me overly poor. Here's why, verse 9. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Don't give me too much. Don't allow me to become a glutton lest I be full, and then I deny you. And I say, who is the Lord? Because it happens over and over again. It happened all the way through the Old Testament. It still happens with human beings, that when human beings are fully content with everything they have, when they have enough to too much, they start thinking they are self-made men. They start thinking, I did this. It was my hard work. It was my intelligence. It was my cleverness. It was my willingness to go in there and put my nose to the grindstone. It was my strength, my ability that got me all of this. And as a consequence, people end up denying God because people, when they're self-sufficient, just don't cry out to God. How many times have you heard me say, when it's all rainbows and kumbaya and bluebirds of happiness on your shoulders, that's not when you're crying out to God. It's when you're in trouble, when you're in poverty, when you're sick. That's when you're crying out to God. As I'm saying that, you're all nodding at me. And if we collectively could figure that out, so could God. He knows that that's what it's going to take to bring his people back to him and back to him. So 
Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or if he becomes poor, and lest I be in want and I steal, and then I profane the name of my God. So he says, I, I would lapse into evil. I'd go into stealing out of necessity if I'm too poor just to survive. And by so doing, I would be profaning the name of the God that I claim to love. Turn over to Philippians 4, and we'll call it a night here. Because Paul picks up this very idea at the end of the book of, of Philippians. Philippians 4, the, the very last chapter, the very last verses in the book. The book of Philippians was written because a gift had been sent from Philippi to Paul. Not that he needed the gift, he says, but that they did well to share with him in his affliction. Epaphroditus was the name of the fellow who brought it and the name of the fellow who apparently carried the letter back to Philippi when he went home. And so he is thanking them. He is joyous that they, once again, have continued in their support of him. And that's why sometimes the book of Philippians is referred to as the joy letter. And here's what Paul says at the end. Having received that gift, he then explains to them that they did a good thing in sharing with him. But that in the end, he doesn't really need it because he would be content regardless of what the circumstances are because he understands that he's imprisoned for the sake of Jesus Christ, that he's going through what he's going through because this is what God has ordained for him and therefore he has learned through the things that he has suffered for the sake of Christ, he has learned in all things to just be content. Starting at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at last, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Isn't that remarkable? Mm -hmm. Contentment. As I said, it's one of the most difficult states of mind for any of us to graduate to is that point of contentment. And real genuine contentment of life can only come if you know that God is your shield and you take refuge in him. And you understand, you have the wisdom to understand the fear and the reverence of God and the understanding that a sovereign God who can bring you any amount of riches and health that he wants to has decided that you're going to go through these struggles, these trials, these difficulties. And the more that you know about that, the easier it is to just accept those things and be content during them. Paul says, you brought me a gift, and I'm glad you did, but it's, it's not that I'm speaking back to you because I wanted the gift, but I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then he describes at verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. In other words, I know how to be lacking in the basic sustenance of life and I know how to live in prosperity he had once been in Jerusalem at the very top of the pharisaical food chain a very mighty man with plenty of wealth and power that's what we've been reading about in men's group lately the authority that Paul had before God broke him I know how to live in prosperity I know how to live in humble means and in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering lack. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. He says, I've learned the secret of it. I've learned how to get through this life. I have learned 
through being high and mighty and wealthy and powerful in Jerusalem, all the way down to being in prison and being beaten, being stoned and left outside the walls of Lystra, left for dead. I know how to spend a day and a night in the deep from shipwreck and just be stuck on an island. I, I know how to endure all these things for the sake of Christ because I've learned a really important secret. And that secret is I can do everything through him that strengthens me. Is it worth pointing out that the t-shirts that quote that verse oftentimes are misapplying that verse because, once again, lack of context and a bit of adding to the word where they say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and what they mean by it is, I can do whatever I want, and I'm strong and mighty in God, and he's the one that strengthens me, and I can do all things through Christ, so I'm going to rip this phone book because he gave me the power, and I, you know. <laughs> no, what Paul said is, I know how to endure having abundance, and that is something you have to learn to endure because it will ruin you, and then I know how to suffer lack. And the secret to all of that is Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well in that you share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have abundance. Do you think sitting there in prison at that moment, this is probably during the time that he was under house arrest, do you think at that moment he actually had the world's abundance at his feet? Do you think he had unlimited wealth and food and power and authority? Well, no. But he said that because he received the gift from the Philippians, because they demonstrated that kind of love toward him, that even though he didn't need the gift, he's in prison. Nevertheless, he sought for them the profit that was going to increase to them because they gave to him. And then he was able to say, I received everything in full, and I have abundance. Your small gift, your gift, whatever it was, is abundant to me. Because, number one, I've learned to get by on whatever I have. And number two, this is going to abound to your credit. So I have everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, now I'm back in Proverbs. Now I think we can understand where Paul got that kind of thinking. He knows the wisdom literature. He knows the writing of Agur. And he knows that Agur has said, Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion lest I become too full and I deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want, and I steal, and I profane the name of my God. Either of those extremes would be the result of just being too human and not learning how to be content. And so, Agur says, just give me what's mine, and that satisfies me. And boy, if we could just learn that... Just give me what's mine. Give me what you have decided for me. And then teach me to be content with it. Teach me to be satisfied what you, with what you have decided is appropriate for me. That's in the wisdom literature. It's in the Pauline literature. I think it's a very, very biblical concept. That if we know God is watching out for us, 
If he's our shield, if he's our buckler, if he's our defense, and he is our very present help in time of trouble, then we can be content with whatever comes our way between here and the glory we're headed to. Make sense? Makes sense. All right. Do you like the words of Agur so far? Can you see why people thought, well, that's right up there with Solomon. We better stick that in the book, too. Except they would have said that in Hebrew. When they said it. So, all right. Any questions? Good. All right. Say goodnight to the internet congregation. Goodnight. Goodnight. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.